The deal struck with Ford is called a stunning victory for the United Auto Workers Union. And I'll talk with Crane's reporter John Pletz about Crane's 2023 list of Chicago's most innovative companies. And Wilson is one of those classic Chicago companies, been around for a very long time. And they've been looking at the tennis ball. Some real innovation on their part is is rethinking one of your products, not only how do you make it, but what do you what do you make it out of? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, October 30th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC slash EHL. I'm joined by Crane's reporter, John Pletz, here to talk about Crane's 2023 list of Chicago's most innovative companies. I feel like that's a big task to kind of narrow it down to one list of companies. There are so many people doing so many interesting things, but uh, tell me about this list and, and some of the highlights on it. It is a big task, but we're helped out by uh, the virtue of patents. Yeah. There's a patent valuation firm in town, Ocean Tomo, that every year uh, combs through all the patents issued to Chicago companies and analyzes them you know, with an eye toward what's novel, what's unique, what's likely to turn into products and that sort of thing. And then they look at the portfolio of patents, and that's how we come up with the list. It seems like AI threads through, well, everything right now, but certainly threads through this list. It does. And, and you know, that's what's, what's really interesting about this. A lot of companies were doing AI before it was cool, or certainly before, you know, most of us had, uh, had typed in our first uh, chat GPT prompt. And AI is, as we've all sort of found out, some pretty complicated stuff. And it didn't just happen overnight. And there's a lot of flavors of AI. So we've got, you know, companies like Narrative Science, which has been on this list before. They were doing natural language generation. So, you know, sort of early AI is figuring out how to understand what humans say. And then the next evolution is how to talk like humans, how to, how to, how to spit out data in, in forms that we understand. And that's really where Narrative Science excelled. And they, they've been uh, cracking away at this for a while. And their product is business intelligence software. One of the things it does is it takes all this data that we've got sloshing around companies. We've got charts and, and graphs and all sorts of things. And what they found out was, can you translate the information into things that people understand? So not only can you summarize things, uh, but but can you... Uh, can you answer or anticipate the questions we might have? And really, if you think about it, that's, you know, that's pretty much uh, what has made generative AI, whether it's ChatGPT um, or BARD, so interesting to people. That's what it does. 
Another theme that kind of pops up, which I, I didn't expect to see on this list so much, is uh, there's a few companies representing the sports sector. There's some gear. There's Wilson on there, which which is a company that you don't think of as being like this cutting edge kind of startup-y thing. This is a really established company, but also even um, sports sports information, sports data. Again, back to AI, you know, uh, stats perform, which, you know, is a company that, that gathers up, you know, all kinds of sports data and has for years from tracking players, you know, inside of stadiums and whether that's, you know, soccer or basketball. And, you know, if you think about the, the kinds of statistics that they're gathering, it's just, you know, unbelievable the, the amount, but they're doing it in real time. That's really sort of the magic aha about AI and you, you see a lot of that. I mean, that you know, there's no place that um, is sort of lousy with data more than sports. Yeah, that's very true. And then, what's Wilson up to? You know, Wilson's one of those one of those great companies. Uh, you know, Wilson and Riddell are both on on the list, and, and Wilson is one of those classic Chicago companies, been around for a very long time. That's constantly so, sort of reinventing itself, and you know, always looking at you know, at its products and, and what's the next thing you can do. They've been on this list a couple of times. They've done some fascinating things, reinventing the tennis racket over the years. It's a big part of what they do. They, they're constantly looking at not only their products, but they're also looking at how they manufacture their products. And that starts to get you rethinking the product itself because of how you make it and how you source materials. And they've been looking at the tennis ball and during COVID, there was a real shortage of tennis balls and sometimes couldn't find them on shelves. And it was all, you know, because of supply chain disruptions. You know, Wilson's always sort of looking at what it makes and how it makes it. But that also got them thinking really hard about reinventing the tennis ball instead of, you know, this very manual process. And, you know, these balls made out of rubber. Could you make them out of, out of a plastic that acts like rubber that's, you know, more accessible um, where you could you know, put the manufacturing close to the end users, shortens the supply chain, which is something a lot of companies are dealing with. It's just, you know, Wilson took a really unique approach, uh, you know, reinventing one of their uh, one of their core products. They haven't brought it to market yet. They're still toying with it. But, you know, that that was some real innovation on their part is is rethinking one of your products, not only how do you make it, but what do you what do you make it out of? Kind of along that is, uh, I was surprised to see Reynolds on that list with five patents in the last year. Kind of along the same idea of sort of innovating on their products. They have a they have a private label business in which they they make uh, a lot of bags for grocery stores and other retailers. One of their patents was on uh, trying to make a storage bag childproof, or you know at least keep what's in the bag away away from children. People are constantly looking at ways to. Um, tweak older existing products. Yeah, certainly. Another uh, example of that on the list is Craig Therapeutics making these kind of specialty hospital beds, another kind of leap forward with them. Yeah, what's what's really interesting about Craig, and this is why, you know, we really enjoy doing this list so much, is that you come across companies and innovators you've never heard of. And this is a classic example of someone coming up with an idea. Um, somebody should make a product like this, right? You know, you sort of all had that moment. Well, that's what he had. He was a you know, hospital products distributor and realized that there were not um, there were not good, especially hospital beds for really large, overweight patients. That's that's a problem for hospitals. 
so he came up with with a solution to that uh created created a bed that um was extremely good at handling that challenge but he knew that there was another big challenge for hospitals which are critical care patients and one of the things about critical care patients is it's important to be able to get them upright um, if, if not upright and mobile as as fast as you can and that's a real challenge you get somebody who's you know uh, just had major surgery or some other really serious condition and you're trying to get somebody who's got you know all sorts of tubes attached to them and you're trying to just get them upright and he developed a bed in which you can do that it's essentially you end up standing on the on the footboard you get you get raised up but you can do it safely and incrementally bit by bit and that's that's harder than you might think but you know it's just a classic case of somebody who who knew the industry and there was a problem and he saw that problem and then figured out how to come up with a with a product to solve that problem and you know a lot of people think they can do it but most most of us can and he did and and he came up with a uh you know, it came up with a successful product and, and ultimately that brought some investors, you know, some very large investors to his door. And and that particular example sort of fits in with another sort of theme that's echoed on this list a bit. And the, and that's um, B2B support as opposed to B2C of, you know, really kind of selling to companies that are serving someone else. Food service equipment is represented there and some software for insurers and repair shops of very specific things. And it seems like that theme has kind of come up through them of like saw a need, saw a gap, filled it and and it worked. Yeah, you know, you, get, you look at a company like uh, CCC Information Services did that decades ago. Just something as simple as, you know, trying to help insurers and repair shops figure out, you know, what what's it cost to replace, you know, a, a totaled vehicle. And that used to be a very, very manual process. And they just kept, you know, like hacking away at that problem, going from printed catalogs and newspaper ads to, you know, sort of an online database to now it's use your phone, you know, to take pictures of the damage and sort of instantly using a, a lot of AI. Again, this is somebody that was doing AI, you know, before it was popular to estimate damages and, and estimate repairs. And, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all automated now. And then on the food service equipment note, bacon has made the list because of a need to cut bacon a little bit more uniformly, which is, uh, you know, we think of all the things, all the problems to fill in the world. Maybe that's not the top of the list, but an important one to some folks. Well, you know, this is another, you know, sort of classic Chicago company, you know, Provisor, which they have long made a lot of the equipment that does things like make burgers and chicken tenders, you know, use, use to form and make those things. They also make the industrial slicing equipment that provides a lot of the, the sandwich meat that we all uh, encounter in the store. They keep iterating and innovating on, you know, on, on those products. And they keep talking to their customers and saying, well, you know, what else would, what else would work? Well, in the, in the business of, of cutting bacon, um, you know, turning a pork belly into slices of bacon, one of the things they found was when you're doing production at scale, meat packing is one of those things. If you're trying to get, you know, uniform slices, the most yield you can, you know, out of the product, they found that if you were able to essentially sort of push, smush and form it to 
what normally looks like just a, a rectangular shape, you can get a much more uniform slice than you can if you just sort of flop one on a cutter in, in whatever sort of shape it might be. There's just less waste. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that simple, but it takes some innovation to come up with a machine that, you know, can help you do that. And, and they're really good at this. They've been on the, um, the list a couple of times for just constantly rethinking, tweaking, coming up with, with new ways, um, you know, to tackle a problem they've been at for a long time. And it really kind of speaks to like a bigger issue about food waste and efficiency there in that manufacturing process. Um, and then talk to me about batteries. That's certainly one we talk about a lot when we're talking about uh, the future of cars, certainly. Yeah, and Medtronics uh, is another company that, that had been on, uh, on a list previously, uh, you know, a couple of times. This is a company out in the suburbs, a uh, guy who had uh, bought some, uh, originally licensed some technology out of Motorola back in the day. And they, they became very good at making testing equipment uh, for, for batteries, for, for car batteries. Well, the original, you know, the car batteries we've had for many, many years, the 12-volt batteries, are nothing like, you know, the lithium-ion batteries, you know, that you're going to find in an EV. You know, the voltage is exponentially higher, which presents some real hazards and risks when you service those cars. And these guys started thinking about that a long time ago, you know, uh, when the first EVs were made. And they've been, they've been working on that, on that problem. They've created some really interesting products. Uh, and one of the, one of the things they're, they're sort of working on now is, I mean, one of their, one of their products helps you as a, as a repair shop, for instance, if you've got an EV that that's having a battery issue. And a lot of times, you know, you've, you've got to replace, there's not just one battery. It's not like, you know, a a traditional, um, you know, car battery where there's one small battery, you, you just put it in and connect it and you're done. You know, these are the, the batteries in an EV is, you know, many batteries um, connected together. Well, when you replace one of those, it goes bad. Uh, you, you've, when you put Humpty Dumpty back together again, you've got to balance that load. And that's, that's not a simple thing to do. And if you don't do it, uh, you know, the, it, you, you create all kinds of problems for, for the battery after you replace um, a part of it. So they did some of that, but they've also, you know, they're working on uh, on a product that's going to help estimate the life of the battery pack that's in an EV. And that's, you know, something that not a lot of us have thought about. Uh, for many of us, an EV is a new thing. Um, and we're thinking about, oh, would you buy one and, you know, drive, drive your shiny new car away? They're thinking about what happens when these become used EVs. And one of the things is the battery life. How do you how do you figure out you know what what the battery life is after six seven years and you know that that gets to the very practical issue of what's the range of the vehicle that you want to know but it, eventually uh, that could become pretty important into figuring out well what's a used EV worth you know at four years at six years at eight years and they're already thinking about that you know and problems I hadn't really considered you know these guys are are several years into and and. That's why patents are so revealing, you know, it's the patents that people are submitting today, they get granted tomorrow, you know, are generally, are a lot of times dealing with things that we're going to confront, you know, many years from now. 
Yeah, certainly. Which, you know, immediately as you're talking about this company in particular, I'm thinking about kind of that investor model and that funding model of, you know, that I feel like that's a pretty bold step, right? It's easier to solve a problem with a business that's happening now, but it's a lot bigger risk. You know, it's a harder sell maybe for investors to say, okay, this is going to be a problem in, you know, several years down the road. And we, we want to put our, our thought and our effort there. That, that becomes very interesting. You know, that's a different conversation to have with an investor. One of the things about patents that's, that's so much fun, that one of the reasons that we do this list every year is, you know, if, if you're wondering what's next, that's a pretty good place to start. You know, because the people who really do not just one-off innovations, um, and that's why, you know, we've, we've had a number of companies that have been on this list uh, more than once. And that's because, you know, they're, they're sort of serial inventors and problem solvers. They're just constantly, you know, like thinking of, the next big thing that's what they do uh and that's what's fun about about the patents because you're getting a look into you know sort of problems that are coming or um technologies that are coming and you know it's been uh it's been fun to watch you know with a company like narrative science for instance you know they've been doing you know a, a flavor of ai and, and just chipping away at this you know for for well over a decade and, you know, they were doing this before, um, you know, the world got exposed to chat GPT and everybody's talking about generative AI. Well, you know, they were doing natural language generation a long time ago. Yeah, you're exactly right. Patents do kind of make us think ahead a few steps. All right. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate you stopping by to break all this down. Talk to you next time. Glad to do it. Coming up, United and Delta Airlines CEOs warn that pending legislation would doom airline loyalty programs. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's sister publication, Automotive News, reported that Ford Motor Company will likely take weeks to resume full production in Michigan, Illinois, and Kentucky after reaching a tentative agreement with the UAW that ended a 41-day strike on Wednesday evening. Workers were called off picket lines shortly after the deal was reached, and many have been placed on temporary layoff as they await notification to return to work in the coming days. That according to some who spoke with Automotive News, which also reported that in an earnings presentation on Thursday, Ford said the UAW's 41-day strike cost the automaker $1.3 billion, effectively wiping out the $1.2 billion in third quarter net income. CFO John Lawler said the strike canceled production of 80,000 vehicles, and the deal will increase Ford's labor costs by $850 to $900 per vehicle, he said.
The UAW late Wednesday said the deal, which must be approved by union leadership and ratified by a majority of its members at Ford, includes larger wage increases over the next four and a half years than members have received in the past 22 years combined. Workers will receive a cumulative 25 percent wage increase, including 11 percent upon ratification. With the return of a cost-of-living adjustment, the overall increase is expected to equal 33 percent, according to the union. Automotive News also noted in reporting that the deal also reduces the time for new hires to reach top wages to three years from eight. It improves pension and 401k plans and grants the right to strike over plant closures, which the union says is a first. UAW officials said that temporary workers who start at about 16 bucks an hour will see a 150 percent increase by the end of the deal, and workers at two Ford plants who receive lower wages will see raises of 85 percent as they are brought on the same pay scale as other assembly workers. Patrick Anderson, CEO of Anderson Economic Group, said in a statement, quote, The UAW tentative agreement with Ford will indeed be lucrative for many UAW members, particularly those in temporary positions or currently in progression toward a top pay bracket. His statement went on to say, quote, It represents a stunning victory for UAW President Sean Fain, who successfully pressured some of the world's largest companies to give them immediate wage increases, cost of living allowances, and work rule concessions that will be the envy of workers in other industries. Automotive News also reported that the strike, which has lasted longer than the UAW's 2019 strike against General Motors, had hit Ford the hardest of the Detroit Three. Roughly 16,600 UAW members were on strike at Ford, more than at GM and Stellantis. And Ford laid off more workers than other automakers. Automotive News noted in reporting that the union is continuing to strike against GM and Stellantis, with about 14,400 workers picketing at each company. Crane's Lee John Greco reported that Mayor Brandon Johnson renewed a contract with Favorite Healthcare Staffing to operate the city shelter's housing asylum seekers, even as Chicago lawmakers and residents criticized the Kansas-based company's ballooning fees and lack of local workers. John Greco reported that the $40 million contract, which the city released on Monday, would pay Favorite Healthcare to run the city's shelters for another year. And the latest agreement reduced hourly pay for most positions. For example, John Greco noted that a facility manager receiving $108 an hour will now get $90 an hour, and a registered nurse would make $136 an hour rather than $156 an hour. The new contract will also include additional local hires, according to the Johnson administration. City council members have criticized the administration's contract with Favorite Healthcare, arguing the company charges rates for security, housekeeping, and facility management that exceed the market rate. A Chicago Tribune analysis of favorite healthcare invoices revealed that overtime pay had added $56 million in bills from the staffing company, representing about two-thirds of city funding to support the effort. John Greco noted that city officials have countered that favorite healthcare emerged as the most expedient choice in the midst of the crisis since Illinois had already vetted the company with a previous contract for temporary staffing personnel back during the COVID-19 pandemic response work in 2021. John Greco also reported that as of October 26th, at least 11,755 people live in Chicago's shelters for persons seeking asylum. And according to the latest figures from the city's Office of Emergency Management and Communications, another 3,272 people are waiting at police districts and O'Hare Airport. 
John Greco also reported that since it all began in August of 2022, 453 buses of asylum seekers have arrived in Chicago. Of those, 343 buses have arrived since May of this year, shortly after the announcement that the city would host the Democratic National Convention in 2024, and the end of Title 42, which was a Trump-era policy that turned away asylum seekers at the border during the pandemic. John Greco noted that, meanwhile, the bidding closed last week on a new solicitation to staff 15 city shelters. When the city drew up that request for proposal at the end of August, it had only opened those 15 shelters. But the number has since grown to 24 and will likely grow as border state governors continue sending buses ahead of the DNC event next summer. While Chicago received 21 proposals, those bidders wanted to staff only 11 of the 15 sites. John Greco further noted in reporting that depending on the outcome of the request for proposal period, the city could award multiple vendors to staff its shelters, which would require additional oversight, according to the Johnson administration. A California real estate investor has paid nearly $35 million for a pair of shopping centers on Chicago's southwest side, betting on a type of retail that's performing well while online shopping weakens the sector overall. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that in one of two recent acquisitions near Midway Airport, a venture of Calabasas, California-based Newmark Merrill paid $24 million late last month for the Pulaski Promenade Shopping Center along Pulaski Road, just south of Interstate 55, according to Cook County property records. Separately, another Newmark Merrill venture paid nearly $10.8 million earlier this month for the Midway Square Shopping Center at the intersection of Pulaski Road and South Archer, also according to property records. Ecker noted that sales of retail properties in the Chicago area during the first nine months of the year were down 50% from the same period in 2022 to just under $1.3 billion, according to data from research firm MSCI Real Assets. Ecker noted that Newmark Merrill bought the fully leased more than 122,000-square-foot Pulaski Promenade from a venture of New York-based DRA Advisors, which had been on a shopping center selling spree this year. In May, the company hired a broker to sell 18 shopping centers in Chicago and just recently unloaded the shops at State Street in the South Loop. DRA took control of Pulaski Promenade through its 2016 acquisition of Oak Brook-based Inland Real Estate's retail portfolio. Tenants in the shopping center today include Marshall's, Shoe Carnival, Michael's, Ross, PetSmart, Ulta, and Carter's. One mile south, Newmark Merrill bought the shopping center that is 92% leased to a group of tenants including Dollar Tree, Chase Bank, and T-Mobile. The more than 55,000-square-foot Midway Square property was sold by a venture of Newport Beach, California, TRC Retail. A TRC affiliate paid $13.4 million for the shopping center in 2019, according to property records. Ecker also reported that Newmark Merrill owns or manages more than 95 shopping centers with a combined value of more than $2.5 billion, according to a statement. Including the two new local acquisitions, the company's Chicago-area portfolio now includes six shopping centers totaling more than 1.5 million square feet and over $220 million in value, also according to the statement. Bloomberg reported that the top executives of Delta and United Airlines are warning that legislation pending in Congress would devastate popular loyalty programs. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the bipartisan proposal aims to save consumers money by forcing more competition in the lucrative credit card payments processing business. Delta CEO Ed Bastian said in an interview that if enacted, 
the legislation would result in, quote, unbelievable consumer backlash from its effect on rewards programs. And Bastion knows how powerful a potential backlash to altering loyalty programs can be. The airline rolled back some changes it made to its SkyMiles credit card rewards after hearing from many of its customers. But the backstory here is that the processing payment system is currently dominated by Visa and MasterCard, which collect billions of dollars each year from swipe fees. The fees, typically about 2% of a transaction, are paid by retailers, but are often passed on to consumers through higher prices. Major banks that issue credit cards co-branded with airlines buy the loyalty program miles or points from the airline to distribute to cardholders. And the airlines are also paid each time the cards are used. For example, Delta expects to receive about $7 billion from its program with American Express this year. United CEO Scott Kirby said on an October 18th conference call, quote, this would kill rewards programs. Also saying, quote, it'll kill debit card rewards programs as well. But advocates say the legislation would only have a modest impact on rewards programs and would save retailers like Walmart and Target, as well as their customers, about $15 billion each year. U.S. retailers are charged far higher swipe fees than counterparts in many other countries where regulations are tighter. Advocates also argue that the fees result in higher prices at a time when inflation is a top voter concern. Read more about this issue at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, John Pletz. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.